Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you the writer-producer of two of TV's most legendary shows, King of the Hill and Silicon Valley, John Altshuler. I'm not a particularly angry person, but I enjoy anger. <laughs> I enjoy being pissed off and going, wait, what the... Now, I could do the entire episode only quoting those two shows. Seriously, test me. I'll do it. But that would leave out some of his other great works, such as Will Ferrell's Blades of Glory, The Good Family, Lopez, and the countless other hours of television he's helped create. And this is all coming from a UNC alum who succeeded despite a less-than-stellar film department and got his first break with the help of a single-dollar bill. It was called the Half Hour Comedy Hour, and uh, <laughs> it was an interesting time because this is pretty cool what you're doing because you're in a program where you're actually learning how to do things. Well, I majored in economics and anthropology. A, I had an interest in them, but B, because the department at Carolina was so terrible in film, so terrible. They literally had equipment that they wouldn't let the students use because they may break it. <laughs> so you couldn't use it. So what happened is these guys who were the people that you really need on campus, started a student television station. Then you have the people that you don't really need, me and Dave Krinsky and some friends, who went, well, they went to the trouble, let's go take their cameras and make our silly show. And so it was flat-out sketch comedy. Right. You know, we'd have things like uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Ted and Alice. Uh, we had a, a sketch called Plant Boy about a boy that was raised by wild plants. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, we had a, a segment I love, students talk about things they don't know or understand, because you could go to any student on any campus and go, what do you think about X? And they'll start talking. They don't know anything about it. They'll start <laughs> talking. So it was a flat-out sketch show and it did us a lot of good though because back then yeah it was a vh uh, not VH, uh three-quarter inch tape and uh it was all you know back in the old days but it looked pretty good so that we could actually show people things because back then there was a high barrier to entry it was hard to get equipment it was hard to make things so we had something that looked right. semi-professional to show I actually kind of miss the days of a high barrier because now every moron is putting whatever. The, there's such a low barrier, which at <laughs> first I thought was great because that makes it more democratic. Yes. But then you go, oh, God, you just wish there was a little bit of a barrier because they send it to me and I got to look at it, you know. <laughs> but um, what it did is it made me realize that, well, I, even though I was an economics major, I don't want to work in a bank. And I've always wanted to do comedy. So we're trying to figure, well, see, I'm in North Carolina with my partner, Dave Krinsky, and I'm delivering pizzas. I'm not connected to anybody. I have no connections. What, what can I do? And I thought, well, what if we got published? And this is actually one of the things I'm most proud of. So there was this magazine called National Lampoon, and it was a humor magazine, and it was kind of important back then, meant a lot to me. 
And what I found out is that they didn't accept unsolicited material. So I'm like, what do you do? So what Dave and I did, I said, well, this is what we'll do. We'll put a packet together, and we send it to the three editors who ran National Lampoon. We sent it to each of them, and I said, I know you don't accept query letters, blah, 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 but here's a little something for your time. And I closed a dollar with each, <laughs> with each letter. We had like uh, three or four ideas. This was, I mean, back in the day. So I'm delivering pizzas. I get home from delivering pizzas. The phone's ringing. I don't even think we had an answering machine. I pick it up, and this guy says, can I speak to John Altshuler? I go, this is him. He was like, this is Chris Simmons, National Lampoon, Money Talks. What have you got? And I'm like, Money Talks? He's like, yeah, I got your dollar right here. <laughs> and so I was like, well, we'll have something. And he goes, great. Get something together. Send it to us. We'll look at it. And they published our first piece which was, there was a, a famous actor called John Belushi. He was in Animal House. He died of an overdose, and they arrested the woman who sold him drugs. And I kind of felt like she was being railroaded because they were blaming her. Now, this is an out-of-control actor who's a complete And so, basically, the premise of our first piece was that she was going to get out of prison and all of Hollywood was terrified because they like, oh my God, you know, and you know, Richard Pryor was scared of what she was going to do to it. Like, uh, because she obviously has this, uh, this power. So they published that. And what that allowed us to do was to put these two concepts together, published writers in a magazine people had heard of, and here's some funny sketches for them to look at. And that opened the doors. By being published and then having this, yes. it, it made it so we were seen as not complete schmucks, just yes. partial <laughs> schmucks. So when we came out here and started banging on doors, we could say, oh, uh, publish a National Lampoon. Here's one of our pieces. It was the only piece, but here's one of our pieces. <laughs> and if you want to see this, you know, uh, so that's that's how we used it. All right, not to sound too much like an old man, but when I was a kid, National Lampoon was the greatest humor magazine. It launched so many remarkable writers' careers and produced movies like Animal House, Vacation, Van Wilder. There's actually a pretty good Netflix movie about it called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. So National Lampoon came originally from a group of writers at the Harvard Lampoon. And Mr. Altshore discovered that, unfortunately, not being a Harvard alum really slowed down his entry into the professional world of comedy writing. There's an interesting thing. I didn't go to Harvard. So that, that's a recommendation to everybody. Uh, to this day, I've got a chip against, uh, uh, even though some of my very good friends went to Harvard. It was so crazy because You'd go meet with an agent and they'd ask you, did either of you go to Harvard? Did either of you go to Harvard? No, we didn't go to Harvard. To the point that when we came on King of the Hill, one of the writer's wife was asking me, how did you get here? I said, well, came out and I worked as a PA for like two or three years trying to write, you know, and she's like, a PA? Well, that's a terrible job. Why would you do that? I'm like, I don't have any money, nice. you know, and I'm, I didn't go to Harvard they, where you just waddle off a boat, show, you know, flop <laughs> down and they give you a, a job on The Simpsons. 
one of the funniest things in the show, another period, was that they had this joke about everybody from Harvard gets a job on The Simpsons. But I went to University of North Carolina, a great school. It wasn't a connection school. Yeah. And my family, my dad was a merchant seaman who became an anthropologist. My mom was fascinating, but a homemaker. We, we had no <laughs> connections. Right. We, I mean, it took me, I was out here six months before I may, had my break of getting a job as a PA. Right. But what was great about that is that I was a PA for this guy, Howard Gottfried. And Howard Gottfried produced Network, Altered States, The Hospital. He was Patty Chayefsky's producer. Yes. And one thing I learned, whatever job you get, just do that well. Exactly. All I did was I made sure that they had coffee in their hands. If they went like this, <laughs> there was coffee there. I never talked about Hollywood. I never talked about writing. I never talked about anything. All I did was make sure if a canister needed to be there, it was there. So they loved me. And, what, and so what happened is Howard Gottfried comes up to me and goes, look, you, you don't want to be a what do you What do you want to be? Right. I want to be a writer. Well, let me read what you've got. Gave him some stuff. He raised like, well, let's talk. So that, then I'm walking through Beverly Hills, talking, writing with Howard Gottfried, <laughs> who produced what the greatest screen, you know screenwriter. Yes. So that is a very important thing that nobody cares if you're here. Just don't be crazy, <laughs> and make their lives easier, and they will look out for you. They will yeah. want to help you because you made their day that much easier. I was a very good PA. Actually, I think I was much better at being a PA than a writer. <laughs> I mean, writing, I'm a very good PA. All right, to his credit, few writers out there would actually brag about being a great production assistant. But then again, few writers are like John Outshore. Even though he spent time originally in front of the camera, Mr. Altshuler realized that he was so much better suited to life behind the scenes. The great tragedy is that I would love to be able to perform, but I'm not good. I, I did a little, I can't tell I would slip in some voiceover because I can do a myriad of rednecks. I can do it like, you know, rednecks from eastern North Carolina through to the mountains. I can do country. I can, I can do all the rednecks, but I, I am not talented. I want to be talented. I love, okay, so whenever we do table reads, I always do, you know, the directions. And, and if the parts, oh, we don't have, oh, Pam Adlon's not here today. I'll be Bobby Hill, you know, because I, I love it and I'm terrible. And the other thing is if you work with, like, Mike Judge is one of the best actors. He's gonna start doing more and more acting, and so that's even more frustrating. Like when we worked with Mike on Beavis and Butthead to see somebody who's just a genius, like he would turn his back, like you write the stuff, he goes in the recording booth and he turns his back and you see this figure, a lot of times when people you're recording for animation, for example, if they do multiple voices, they do all one voice, then all another voice, so they can, and I'm watching this, it was it was almost freakish. He's doing all the rolls back and forth, not stopping. <laughs> Pull my finger. <clears throat> Pull my finger, dude. No way. <clears throat> Come on, pull my finger. Nothing? <laughs> FBD. <laughs> 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 that 
with Colin. <laughs> so he's real talented, and I'm not, so I write. Well, it's a good thing he actually doesn't have more acting talent, because if he did, he might never have joined Mike Judge's King of the Hill. I tell you what, man, you go load up them dynamite and old can like that, you go to boom. Soccer was invented by European ladies to keep them busy while their husbands did the cooking. That's my purse! I don't know you! Man, I loved King of the Hill. That show's like a national treasure. And as a writer, it was more than just a job for John Altshore. It was a chance to vent. A lot. One of my proudest moments is when Mike Judge told, we were at some conference, he goes, King of the Hill, we basically have 150 episodes about what pisses John off. So <laughs> basically, you know, it's like I go to the, the vet and they're telling me it's either an $11 pill or a $1,200 procedure. And I'm like, well, why don't we try the $11 pill? <laughs> I wouldn't feel good doing that, you know. So I realize these vets have you over an emotional barrel. Yes. So I do an episode about it. Like when when this kid was panhandling to me, and I realized that his jacket cost way more than mine. It pissed. So you do an episode on it. So I'm not a particularly angry person, but I enjoy anger. I enjoy being pissed off and going, "Wait, what the?" F That's where. Most of the idea, like, I have a project about Barry, a terrorist from the 70s, okay? And I grew up on college campuses then. I hate these people, okay? <laughs> these are the ones who, like, rolling pipe bombs under cop cars. And then, like, it, it was based on this woman who I hated so much. Her name was Kathy Salaya. She was the soccer mom in Minnesota who they found out that she was in the weather underground. You know, they, they killed two cops and then another bystander, and then she went away. And her defense, when they caught her, was everybody was doing it. And I was like, well, that's, that's just great. So I developed a whole series about everybody was doing it. Because that's, like, what became very clear to me is that, okay, I started doing a little checking, and you know, Simonese Liberation Army who kidnapped yeah. Patty Hearst? I'm looking at this website. Their symbol was a nine-headed hydra, okay? And I'm going, wait a minute. That means at some point, a bunch of wannabe revolutionaries were in a room going, what's our symbol? Well, I, I don't know. How about a tiger? No, not a tiger. How about an elephant? No, not an elephant. How about a hydra? And then they got to nine heads, okay? And I realized, well, that's a scene that you never see. Okay, so it all started from anger, because this woman really pissed me off. And I hate these people, but I love them. P.G. O'Rourke, who was the editor of National Lampoon, he goes, you know, the thing about you know being in the 60s and 70s, he goes, everything we did was wrong, everything was terrible, but it was fun. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, that's what you never see. Like when I grew up in Carbondale, Illinois, I remember seeing mimeographs that said, riot tomorrow, three o'clock, okay? And so I, I was like eight or nine, we'd go watch the riots. And I can tell you the riots that you saw in real life had nothing to do with a riot shot by Robert Redford, it's like they were having fun. They burned down the the oldest building on campus, and they were. It was a blast. And I was like, "Wait, you don't see that?" And then the last piece came when I realized that when you read the Anarchist Cookbook, which was this bomb-making book, and you realize that forming 
a terrorist group in the 70s it was like forming a garage band in the 90s. <laughs> That literally, instead of them needing a bass player, could somebody make a bomb, you know? <laughs> so, basically, the things that piss me off usually create a spark. And I go, oh, wait, why am I pissed off? What is it about this? You know, yeah. privilege tends to piss me off. You know, so I go, okay, well, wait, what is this? Uh, and then I start twisting because my son told me something that I just loved is that a kid in his class went out on a limb and he said, I think racism is bad. <laughs> and I, I was like, that's just great, because there are people that think that other normal people think racism is good. You know, like, and so, like, on King of the Hill, I ran King of the Hill with Dave Krinsky for eight years. What I tell the writers is that everything's got to be turned on its head. We're not going to do an episode about racism unless we're saying racism is good. We're not going to do an episode on book burning unless we're saying book burning is good. And we, the closest we got with the racism one was Hank Hill having a racist dog. And what it turned out is that the dog wasn't racist. It hated figures of authority. We never got the book burning one to work. But this is the problem with this. This is not a big thinking town. Is that somebody could actually go... Well, you know what, on whatever, you know, on, on who's got a maid, we're going to tackle illiteracy, because illiteracy is bad, you know, like, or racism is bad. <laughs> it's the obvious, where, well, let's look at the humanity behind all of this and turn it on its head. He's right. Nothing is more deadly to comedy than over-sentimentality. For instance, the entire Hill family, they love each other. But episodes didn't usually end with a simple hug and an awe from the audience. We love those characters, specifically because they are so flawed and imperfect. That's okay. So are we. And that attitude and that approach to character has continued to serve John Outshore incredibly well on HBO's Silicon Valley. I memorized the hexadecimal times tables when I was 14 writing machine code. Ask me what nine times F is. It's 75. I have a question. That was horrible. This guy f***s. Am I right? With all due love to the Big Bang Theory, Silicon Valley feels so much more like we are truly immersed in the world of zeros and ones. And though Mr. Altshuler is surrounded by engineers and his family, it was Bill Gates who inspired the show, but not in the way you'd expect. My brother is an electrical engineer. My brother-in-law is an electrical engineer. And my niece is an electrical engineer. I'm surrounded by <laughs> electrical engineers, okay? And I've always been attracted to situations that have been described incorrectly. Like, my brother, my brother-in-law, none of these people are on the Big Bang Theory. You know what I mean? Like, it, it didn't quite make sense. And then I was reading the um, biography of Steve Jobs, and there was a quote in there where Bill Gates was ridiculing Steve Jobs, and he's saying, the guy can't even write code. Jobs was a poser. He didn't even write code. You just disappeared up your own asshole. And I thought, the guy created the biggest brand in the world, <laughs> and there's somebody up yes. in Silicon Valley sniping at him. I was like, this is hilarious. And I didn't know what it meant. So I called my brother, and he explained to me what code was. And... So I got interested in it, and so then I, uh, I was talking to Mike Judge, because, you know, we were partners, and he just thought that was the funniest thing. He studied physics and loved the idea, just th this idea that nobody, once again, it's not that there aren't 
classic geeks, like on the Big Bang Theory, that's the best example, but it wasn't who we knew. Like, the guys we know wore Greek fisherman hats and played in 1920s bands, and they, they, like it just didn't mesh. And so the fact is, is that although it was all tangential, it was something that you kind of felt. Then I said, well, let's start researching this. And we went up to Silicon Valley, and it was so funny because I studied anthropology, and I started realizing this was a subculture. These programmers, there's always a tall, skinny white guy, short, skinny Asian guy, fat guy with a ponytail, some guy with crazy facial hair, and then an East Indian guy. It's like they trade guys until they all have the right group. Everybody was talking about their numbers. You know, you'd go meet and say, well, I was number eight at what, what company, number eight. And so what it was is that you ranked yourself by how low your number was because that meant that you were early on a company. And then, I, this was in the pilot and through the series, is that everybody kept talking about how they're making the world a better place. <laughs> We're going to make the world a better place. We got, we got an app that'll like, uh, make your water go. It'll make the world a better place. That's why I started this place, to do something big, to make a difference. We're making the world a better place. We could really make the world a better place. Uli is about innovative technology, making the world a better place through minimal message-oriented transport layers. I kind of thought that was hilarious because I missed the days when somebody said, we're going to build a locomotive that goes through here. You know, yeah. They can't just do anything. They got him. So the sanctimony was so thick that I thought, well, this is something to make fun of. And then the more that you researched it, the bigger the target seemed. And the fact is, is that it's more fun to take on the big guys and try to deflate them. And these guys really need deflating because they're, <laughs> they're really, um, you know, what was it? Google, they had a motto that was like, do good? Yes. I'm like, well, you know, Hitler thought he was doing good. <laughs> you know, Mao thought he was doing good. All these people think they're doing good. I don't need that guy to have all the power in the world to do good. <laughs> so so anyway, so that was the inspiration to answer your questions that a little bit of knowledge, a fair amount of research, and a lot of a little anger. And I think it was helpful that we were outside, and then it helped that Mike had his own axe to grind. He hated being an engineer so desperately. <laughs> you know, office space was about, you know, he, he got a job, you know, basically low-level engineering, and he kept thinking of how he was going to kill himself. Right. You know, so uh, um, it's a love-hate relationship with Silicon Valley. This love-hate relationship is embodied by Silicon Valley's characters, who are driven to succeed in an industry where they seem to despise pretty much every one of their peers. Kind of like what Groucho Marx used to say, I don't want to be part of a club that would have me as a member. Hey, what do you guys think about this Jared? He's sh right? Oh God, the marketing team is having another bike meeting. Douchebags. Look at me, I traveled back to 2009. <sighs> you guys, you all think you're John Lennon until someone waves a dollar in your face. Over its run, the show has been forced to evolve after losing two of its key cast members. First with the untimely passing of Christopher Evan Welch, who played Peter Gregory back in season one. And then more recently, T.J. Miller's abrupt exit from his career-defining role 
as Ehrlich Bachman. You'll see this on a multitude of shows going back to Cheers and probably farther. Is it? We had this great actor, Christopher Welch, who uh, was in our first season. Welcome to the Peter Gregory Foundation's fourth annual Orgy of Caring. The first three were fine. He was a great, great actor, great man. You just figure it out. I don't like talking about this particularly because I'm very fond of TJ, but the fact is, is that you just adapt, and I have to say, it's much easier in this day and age. We did eight episodes, 10, 10, 10, and then eight episodes, okay? This is like, I mean, on King of the Hill, we did 24 episodes a season, okay? You get a monkey wrench there with limited resources. The, the truth is, with HBO and doing eight episodes that season, you just do what you need to do. It's sort of, it's just the job. I, I know that sounds vague, but basically, things happen like, oh, we just lost our building and we're doing Die Hard. Well, what are you gonna do? You know, you just adapt and figure out, well, what matters, what doesn't matter? What were the strengths of this situation and how, how best to do it? Like the ragtag team that makes up Pied Piper on Silicon Valley, Mr. Altshore gets by with a little help from his friends namely co-writer Dave Krinsky and the man who gave us office space, King of the Hill, and not to mention Beavis and Butthead, Mike Judge. Unfortunately, like Pied Piper, sometimes the logistics of working together can get a little complicated. Dave and I are writing partners, so there's not really a division per se. It's a little a weird thing, is it? Like, Dave and I are traditional partners, but even within that, I do some things by myself. Mike does some things by himself, like he did this animated thing for uh, Cinemax about touring bands. He just did that himself. And then we'll come together. And it's an interesting thing is that it's kind of sad to me in a way is that Dave and I have to be very careful when we work with Mike. Mike is one of my better friends and he's immensely talented, but what happens is that when Dave and I do things with Mike, it's all about Mike Judge. So this was actually quite a problem with Silicon Valley, because you, you come up with a show, you write, and HBO made it very clear, I mean, this is Mike Judge, and it's not his fault. But it, it, it's interesting, because he was on Howard Stern, and three times he tried to bring me up and how the show, Howard Stern didn't want to hear it. He right. wanted to hear about Mike Judge. Right. And so what we do is like, I'll write something or Dave and I will write something. And like, for example, Mike Judge wants to direct City of Bell. And what we found is that that's the best way for us to operate because that way he can come in when it's established at some level and it doesn't just become, I mean, I still remember, and you know, it's not a problem, but we turn in the script for Silicon Valley, and it comes back, untitled Mike Judge Project. And you're like, <laughs> what? Okay. But the fact is, is that it's not like he ain't doing the job on the show, and it's not like he wasn't, you know, immensely, I mean, he's had to work more on Silicon Valley than Dave and I. 
So the dividing, the, the you know, we help Mike with just about everything that he does. He helps us, but we have to kind of keep some things separate. Like Dave and I did Blades of Glory. We Yay. did that separately um, yeah. because otherwise we're just seen as an adjunct to Mike. And it sucks because we all just love working together. <laughs> but he understands it as well, you know, right. because it's awkward for him because yeah. he's a great guy. So he doesn't like taking yes. credit for things that, you know, or taking too much credit. Mr. Altshore's ability to turn aggravation into art eventually brought him to a new project he's currently developing. Based on the remarkably crooked politicians in the city of Bell, California. It comes to me, <laughs> you know, it, it finds me, you know, it's like, I don't have to go, like, there's a project that we're, uh, I think, well, have you ever heard of the city of Bell? City of Bell is the most corrupt, poorest city in California, where the city manager's paying himself 800000 a year. <laughs> da, da. And I was so mad about the way that the local governments are in California with all these people, 400000 here. So, it's another thing. I hated this guy, so, but I loved him because if you check into the, you know, this guy Rizzo and all these people, they didn't have a chance. They were the truly disenfranchised. They were ugly. They were dumb. <laughs> they had no connections, and they figured it out. They cracked the code, and, you know. And so basically, I was like, "Well, that's a series." So it it started off with me just going, "God, these, you know, these people piss me off." But but usually, not always. The things that piss me off, it just sort of wakes me up, and I go, "Whoa, whoa what, what's going?" going on here and i have written things that don't piss me off there's one project that you know the, the, it's something that you guys probably should i was going to talk about a little bit is the business has changed so dramatically like i had a project which was a napoleonic war comedy and here's the thing everybody told me not to write a napoleonic war comedy sat down we wrote a napoleonic war comedy and we had Johnny Depp, everybody in the world wanted to be this character. Well, we had the money, we had Steve Carell wanting to be it, we had Jay Roach to direct it, and Steve Carell didn't want to go to Europe. It was a, well, within two years, the world changed, and the $53 million went to $35 million, went to $28 million. So now what I've done is I've redeveloped it as a... It's the, now the continuing adventures of Brigadier Gerard as a 10 episode series like Sherlock. That Barry Terrius product started out as a movie, can't make movies anymore. So I've converted them into these sort of limited series, which I like, but I also, I love movies. So it's kind of like, I, I, I wanted to circle back because not every idea is worthy of dragging out for 12 hours. So this might not be shocking news, but TV has changed a lot over the last 10 years, thanks in no small part to Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. And just like TV's changed, so is the process of selling television, starting with the pitch. It's changed, okay? It used to be that I would always have three ideas, and you'd sort of pitch, and you knew they didn't like one idea, and then you sort of held back one. So we'd have three ideas that we would pitch, now, I'm not sure how 
important pitching is anymore. <laughs> because now the executives want to see things. Right. I mean, it's not that they don't want you to pitch. I mean, fortunately, my agents and my manager like Dave and I, and they like me, is that I'm actually a good pitcher. You know, if you said, oh, you know, pitch me one of your stories, I can do it. I do it lively and engaging, and I, you know, but even though I'm good at it, I don't like it. I don't like doing it because I'm not sure how it works anymore. So now I basically, and this sounds vain, but I say I don't want to go in unless they're already buying it. Now they don't have to buy it, but unless they're buying it, I'm kind of like, well, what do I go in? So here's the thing. You should always pitch when you're starting out. Why do you pitch? A, it helps you focus your stories because you start seeing, wait, I hit a bump and I, I need to make these adjustments, okay? So it helps you tell the story, which will help you write the story. You will also make connections with the people that you're pitching to, and it may not sell then, but they'll move up the ladder, you will have known them, so it's, it's a good thing. So let's just say that pitching does matter. What I would say is you go in, have your story and try to start off with a topic sentence or a personal story. Like I told you, this is how City of Bell came to me, okay? This is how Silicon Valley, I'm reading this book, what the hell? Okay, you try to grab them. Now, here's the thing. I do not like pitching and then they go da 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 and then they go here and the, it makes me want to die, okay? <laughs> and, and you can see them kind of, okay? So what I like to do is to know everything but to try to make it a conversation. Like I sold a project to NBC called The Deplorables and this, this is the, I'll give you the quick pitch is that basically the whole show is about these people that are truly the most marginalized population in the country. Nobody likes them, nobody wants them, and they're deplorable, but they are not Republicans, they're not Democrats. They hate big government, they hate big business. They feel like they're screwed by everybody, okay? <laughs> and then I start talking about, well, and I wanna have a character who is from this area, who moved to Atlanta, his, his parents moved away from this you know, sort of feuding area to Atlanta because I want to do a reverse Green Acres. So I'm just having a conversation about what interests me. And then they can say, oh, well, what would be a story of the show? And the dad says, he's talking to the cousins, I'm worried about Byron that he'll fit in. And they, they go, well, tell him to go get his gun and we'll take him hunting, <laughs> and everything's gonna be great. And Mike has to let him know, he's 11 years old, he, do, he doesn't have a gun. Well, is he a felon? Because that, that, that's the only way that they could imagine a kid not having a gun. Well, what I think is happening, the kid blows his thumb off, but what they do, and this is real, is they take the toes from corpses <laughs> and they put them on and they make, and so he becomes toe thumb and becomes cool in the new town. So. I sort of start off with a big picture and then just kind of until it's a personal story about a kid and his dad blowing his thumb off and replacing it with a toe. John Altshower is always finding his personal connection to material. 
be it an animated propane and propane accessory salesman, or Silicon Valley's ridiculous app, Not Hot Dog. But as a great man once said, if you love something, set it free. It's something that I was told, and it is completely true, is don't hang on to anything. You just gotta let everything go, because if it's great, it'll get back in, okay? But you've just gotta be able to throw everything away, knowing that you'll be able to come up with something better, and you learn that through <laughs> years of hard knocks. It, I mean, it's hard, I mean, and I still do it. I mean, there's something that you love. With City of Bell, there's this aspect that I love, and I'm going, you know what? It's just getting in the way. I know better. You just just let it go, throw it out, and if it's great, it will drift back in. If being pissed off inspires him, then let's hope he is never happy. Fortunately, we are incredibly happy and thankful that John Altshore spent time with our students. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Tova Leiter. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. That boy ain't right.